everybody, I'm your host, Mark Houston II, and you're tuned in to At Legal Ease, the Cashing Out Edition, Episode 2. Today is May 3rd, 2020. I'm excited to have everyone here. Welcome back. Glad to have you. Really excited. As a reminder, no, this isn't your favorite argumentative sportscast or gossip site. This is a legal business perspective coupled with a true love of sport dictated to the culture, for the culture, by a sports attorney. As a general disclaimer, the information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. So enough of the formalities, let's just get right into it. We got a lot to cover tonight. Let's start tonight with a heat check, heat check one, two. So tonight, for tonight's episode, I'm wearing the Jordan 2 Retro Black Chrome. And she's wearing the Jordan 11 Gamma Blue. And again, this is all in honor of the ESPN Jordan documentary. Episodes 5 and 6 air tonight. So I'm trying to get this recording in as soon as possible so that I can tune in and see how this last dance turns out. Moving right along. On this day in sports... In 1954, the first intercollegiate court tennis match in the U.S. was played. It was played between none other than Ivy League rivals Yale and Princeton. Now, this is a heated rivalry that goes back years, if not centuries at this point. In 1969, U.S. President Nixon attended the Kentucky Derby at Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, this was the first time a sitting U.S. president attended the race. And in honor of sports and politics, here's a clip. In sports, we want to get our sports back. So importantly, these will be some separate calls. Some will be together, by the way, lists, and some will be separate. But we have to get our sports back. I'm tired of watching baseball games that are 14 years old. But I haven't actually had too much time to watch I would say maybe I watch one batter and then I get back to work. Same, bro. Same. In 2007, the Golden State Warriors defeated the Dallas Mavericks in Game 6. It was the first time a number 8 seed defeated a number 1 seed in a 7-game playoff series. That had to be a dagger. Ouch. So this week's shout-out goes out to none other than Half Thor the Mountain Bjornsson as he beat the world deadlifting record by deadlifting a record 1,104 and a half pounds. That's quite a lot to deadlift, and if you see this video, it's pretty intense. Now, this guy is intense. If you know about him, he's the mountain on Game of Thrones. So all those that love GOT, he's on Game of Thrones. Uh, you can see him. He looks like a menace there. But after watching the Strongman competition today, I did a little research on him. Um, and I saw that he actually played basketball. He's a baller. He was a, he played center during his career. And during the strongman competition, he was actually wearing some Jordan 1. So shout out to him. Sounds like he knows a little bit about the culture. Uh, so big shout out to you. Keep lifting, bro. But watch out for those steroids. <laughs> Moving on. Today's topic is going to be a really interesting topic uh, from the ranks of college sports and the NCAA. Uh, today in sport or this week in sports, the NCAA finally paved the way by inching towards allowing student athletes to become paid sponsors. Now, this is a heavy, heavily contended 
uh, extremely contentious debate between the NCAA and those that don't support its model um, and not paying and compensating student athletes uh, for their skills and most importantly, their name, image, and likeness. Um, and what happened, interestingly, this week is the NCAA took recommendations from a working group um, uh, which was studying uh, the future of name, image, and likeness um, and was able to present recommendations to the NCAA's board of directors. Now, this was done on April 28th of 2020. And I'd like to just give you some main takeaways so we don't get you know too far down in the weeds. But um, according to ESPN, uh, the working group, uh, they recommended several changes. Uh, one of the first changes is that student athletes would be able to model apparel so long as it doesn't feature school logos. So you might have a favorite athlete uh, who is going to, he's going to wear some apparel on, you know, whatever, uh, you know, whatever medium he decides to, uh, to, to do it in, he or she, uh, you know, Instagram, social media, um, whatever. In this instance, it won't be allowed, you won't be able to see the school logo at all. So if you have a familiar face from your particular school, don't expect them to have anything off the court with that logo on it. Uh, the second one is athletes could potentially be paid to appear in advertisements. There's a restriction there, though. Um, so here they're saying uh, the recommendation is that athletes would be able to appear in, in different ads, whether it's media ads, uh, whether it's commercials, etc., um, and they'll be able to use their face, and you'll be able to recognize them. Uh, be, the only restrictions, though, is they won't be able to. They'll be able to say they're in college. They again will not be able to say which school they play for. So again, you might hear the athlete say, "Hi, my name's X, Y, and Z." You might know me from playing basketball. You might know me from playing football, but there will be no mention of you know me from X, Y, and Z school or university. Uh, another recommendation, uh, the NCAA should allow athletes to hire agents to help them find marketing opportunities, but the agent cannot seek professional sports opportunities while they are enrolled in school. So again, this all ties around the NCAA amateurism rules, in which I discussed a bit more at length uh, last week, in which... In order to qualify and remain eligible to play for the NCAA, a uh, student athlete cannot have played professionally, and they cannot have been able, they cannot have been paid or accept any payments for their skill um, uh, while they're an NCAA athlete. Otherwise, that would violate the amateurism rule. So here, um, as I'll delve into a little bit more um, in a second. Uh, there's always opportunities for an athlete, uh, both on the court and off the court, on and off the court, or on and off the field. So on the field, of course, is going to be the agreement between the team, the organization, and the player. Off the field is going to be the endorsement and mark, uh, sponsorship deals, which are more or less the marketing deals. So here, what the NCAA is allowing is they're going to allow agents for these student athletes to find the off-the-field opportunities, so the different marketing opportunities, the endorsement, sponsorship deals. However, that agent is not going to be able to inquire about them moving forward uh, to the pro ranks, 
uh, see what their eligibility and their status is in, in terms of the draft until you know all that comes down they actually declare for the draft and the whatnot so again uh, some more leeway however it's, it's still froth with a lot of restrictions um, the next requirement um, in that endorsement deal vein is that any student athlete uh, is going to have to report the details of their endorsement deals to their athletic departments. So what this is going to cause is an uptick in work for the compliance departments, uh, for the, the different athletic departments in the various universities uh, to ensure that the student athletes are indeed complying with the NCAA rules and they are reporting each deal they have, which is going to you know, require them to disclose the dollar amounts, uh, the terms of the deal, etc. So you might uh, you know, kind of get see some fighting back and forth between maybe the agents, the students, and the school uh, should this pass. So uh, the very last one uh, is a pretty big uh, restriction um, on the endorsement deals and that the student athlete will not be able to endorse any products or substances uh, which are banned by the NCAA and or conflict with the NCAA rules. So these are your alcohol products, your tobacco products, probably your firearm products. Um, and so no time soon will you see your favorite athlete um, endorsing your favorite jewel product or your favorite Budweiser or even your hard seltzer uh, products um, that, are, that are for sale now. Um, the NCAA is going to block that. So that really brings us to our topic today. And uh, the topic I like to discuss that really ties in to that news is the right of publicity. Um, and just to give you, you know, a brief overview, the right of publicity prevents the unauthorized commercial use of an individual's name, likeness, image, or other recognizable aspects of one persona, one's persona. It gives an individual the exclusive right to license the use of their identity for commercial promotion. So here... Again, everybody, any any individual, not just athletes, uh, they have the right, you have the right, we have the right to take our image, our name and likeness, and use that for commercial gain. The only way someone else can use that is if they pay us. The issue here, what's been at a huge issue of contention with the NCAA and those who don't agree with the market is that in order for an athlete to become an NCAA student athlete uh, through the clearinghouse you have to waive you have to waive your rights uh, to name image and likeness uh, so you waive your right to recourse you actually sign over and grant the use of your name image and likeness to the NCAA to the school that you're playing for um, and those entities can then use your name image and likeness to make commercial profit whereas the student athlete receives no compensation other than uh, the scholarship that they uh, receive to the school. So you can see how one can really uh, deem that to be not so fair, uh, not so much a, a bargain for arm's length uh, sort of negotiation or really a negotiation in good faith when really one side is really a one-sided deal, kind of if you look at it, uh, where one side is really taking a lot of the commercial benefit and the other uh, is not really getting into that. So this law, as I've discussed, is going to change that and turn it on its head and allow student athletes, through no association with the school, simply their only, only their image and likeness, to gain some commercial profit. So that brings us to the next question in today's topic, is 
What is the difference between an endorsement deal and a sponsorship deal? I think every athlete should know this. Um, an athleisurer, follower, sports, fan of sports should definitely know this. Um, certainly attorneys and agents uh, you know, are well aware of this. Um, but to explain um, the difference, an endorsement is a form of public support or approval. And in the sports context, it's an agreement under which an athlete is employed or receives consideration for the use by the other party of that individual's person, name, image, or likeness in the promotion of any product, service, or event. Contrastly, a sponsorship is the promotion of a company in association with an event or property slash venue. And in the sports context, this is a partnership between a company and an athlete in which a corporate brand compensates an athlete in exchange for being granted certain certain marketing rights by the athlete in order to promote the brand's image, generally. Moreover, sponsorship governs the legal relationship between a sponsor and the person entitled to enforce the sponsorship obligation. So with these various agreements and contracts, endorsement and sponsorship, there are some key considerations uh, that should go into that contract. And I'm going to run down a couple of those. Um, the first is term. Uh, term is really the length of the agreement. How long is it going to last? Is it going to be a year, six months? Is it just going to be a couple instances? How does that work? Secondly is renewal. So is the agreement automatically renewed? Will it be, will it need to be re renegotiated? Will either of the parties have the first right of refusal or the right to match completing offers? Definitely some considerations. Third is exclusivity. So can the athlete work with any competitors in the same product area or general industry? Um, and this leads us also to the location or the geography. So is the work or the agreement or the partnership between the parties, is this just within the, the continental U.S.? Is this globally or is this universally? The third are the marketing rights, the nature and scope of the rights granted. So here, one needs to know and negotiate uh, whether the specific products, the rights to specific products or, or in general. Um, and it, that really ties into exclusivity a little bit, but more to, to go further, is it, isn't it, is it an obligation of the athlete to wear branded clothing or appear to use products or services of the sponsor, uh, in general and specifically in industry related instances, commercial opportunities, when and where that's really what you want to negotiate and figure out. Uh, the next is going to be reputation and how one manages that. So for the brand or the company that's working with an athlete, you're going to see a desire to place morals clauses in which there are stipulations really placed on the athlete as to what can and cannot be done. And, and if the, if these occurrences do occur, whether or not the agreement would be invalidated. So easy example is if the athlete commits some sort of heinous crime. If they commit a heinous crime um, and, uh, you know, something clearly not in line 
that, that would be clearly something not in line with the brand uh, that would really want the brand to disassociate itself with the athlete. On the other hand, um, what an athlete wants to do and should be able to do and, and an agent or an attorney should keep in mind is the athlete always wants to have an ability to exit and withdraw from the agreement in case the brand or the company does something that could damage the athlete's reputation. So a lot of these are called, this is really called the non-disparagement clause. Um, and so you can see how that kind of works both ways. The next consideration, key consideration, is the athlete's liability. An athlete is always going to be want to be fully indemnified uh, or else uh, fully insulated um, from fully indemnified and insulated from any liability that could occur based on the use of this product. Uh, so here, essentially what the athlete is going to ask for is for the sponsor to cover any claims uh, that any user, member of the public might bring uh, through use of the product, whether the product's unsafe, whether its use was misleading, or else defective. And what you'll usually see from the company, the sponsor, uh, etc., is that they'll want to push back and, and maybe not try to give so much full coverage. I mean, usually they will, uh, you know, to, to be, uh, you know, to work in good faith. Um, they might be able to concede that point a little bit. But from the athlete's perspective, you definitely want to push for that. The last key consideration are approvals and control of the use of the athlete's image and likeness, the trademarks and likeness, etc. Um, here, what you want to have, an athlete wants to have, is final a final say-so and at least some sort of final okay in the decision-making process as to what actually goes out. Um, for instance, what photograph goes out, what video goes out, uh, how the athlete is going to be portrayed uh, in these marketing initiatives, uh, whether it's endorsement or sponsorship. Um, here, you, you see some pushback from the brand um, in which they want to have the final say-so because it's their product, etc. But I think it's important for an athlete to really keep that in mind. So, with all that said, that's really giving some background on the NCAA, their new stance on name, image, and likeness, um, exactly what endorsement sponsorship deals are, uh, some key considerations for the two. So a burning question I'm sure a lot of our listeners have is, does that mean our favorite EA Sports NCAA video games are going to be coming back anytime soon? Unfortunately, I have some bad news in, in that there are some, a couple other cases, which I won't go uh, too deep down into, uh, that sort of have ruined that um, from really happening. So you have the O'Bannon versus NCAA and the Keller versus EA Sports, which really have uh, sort of disallowed um, this from occurring and, and for, for these, uh, these games from returning. And uh, because of those different um, cases, um, and just to kind of give you, you know, the, the various holdings, uh, you know, the O'Bannon case, um, at the end of the day, sort of established that 
that uh, student athletes can now receive up to a $5,000 stipend um, in addition to their scholarship package. Um, and the issue that was really raised uh, in that case is uh, in the absence of NCAA amateurism rules, uh, whether student athletes uh, would be able to receive payments in school from schools and or third parties uh, for their name, image, and likeness uh, usage in the video games and sports broadcasts utilized. The answer here was basically yes, and that sort of paved the way uh, for these $5,000 stipends. So in, uh, in, in the other case, uh, the Keller case, uh, very similar. Um, the key legal question there was whether EA Sports had a First Amendment right to use the student athlete's name, image, and likeness in its games, um, whether or not it had uh, obtained permission from the student athletes. Uh, so really that held that NCAA football and NCAA basketball games, video games, cannot be produced without obtaining permission from the student athlete. So unfortunately, we won't be getting those games back anytime soon. Um, and the NCAA has actually mentioned that the only way that could really occur is if there was some sort of unionization um, of the student athletes, which, you know, would really take a long time to, you know, really figure out um, and would probably really just undermine the process in the first place. So you can check that out, uh, NCAA's recommendations uh, regarding uh, name, image, and likeness. So moving on to some lighter topics again, I have some hot stories for you. So this week, uh, NFL offensive lineman Larry Laramie Tunsil, he negotiated his own $66 million extension with the Houston Texans. And while this might not sound too crazy, at first glance, one needs to know he did this without an agent. And so... I'd like us to start off with a quote with him. You know, he thinks he, quote, started a trend by not having an agent doing my deal, unquote. So his deal has about $50 million guaranteed. Uh, he roughly gets $22 million per year, which really which makes him the highest paid lineman by about $4 million per year. So he was able to do this. Uh, with He worked with advisors, and uh, he worked with, uh, Seahawks' Bobby Wagner, who's another NFL player who negotiated his own contract recently. Uh, Tunsil said he wanted to, to sign a three-year contract extension um, instead of a longer deal because he wanted to give himself another opportunity to hit free agency in his late 20s. So about 28, 29, he'll be a free agent again. And so that shows a lot of strategy that goes into uh, some, some of the negotiation process, uh, which, you know, I think is very thoughtful. Um you know, for, for a guy, you know, to really understand what's at stake and be able to negotiate that for himself. I mean, kudos to him. Um, it, and he discussed his decision. He said uh, he decided to fire his agent and negotiate a contract himself because he felt it was time to, quote, write, his own, write my own destiny and to put things into my own hand and get it done. I think that's really impressive. Uh, moreover, Another quote, uh, I just wanted to reset the market and become the highest paid offensive lineman just so all the young players under me know that anything's possible. You just have to put your head towards it. So for all of those out there listening, you may or may not really need 
an agent to negotiate some of these deals. Now, I say that with caution because, you know, is this a new trend or was this just luck? I mean, that's really to be determined. At any rate, I mean, it's really a huge win for the player versus organization at Paradigm. Um, um, but I think in this instance, it certainly had a lot to do with the, the amount of leverage the player had over the team and really what the team needed. So he was a former first-round pick. Um, the Texans really picked him up. They really need to keep him there to protect uh, Deshaun Watson, their quarterback. So, you know, all things were really at play and uh, certainly helped him out. But kudos to him nonetheless. Moving on. Uh, seems to be everyone's favorite bandwagon basketball team, is, NBA team, is back in the is back in the news. So here the Los Angeles Lakers took a $4.6 million loan from the Federal Forgivable Loan Program. Now, yes, this is the Lakers, who are the eighth most valuable sports team, valued at about $3.7 billion. They also play in the second largest media market. Um, so the Lakers applied for the loan under the Small Business Administrator's Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, which, of course, was a part of the federal government's $2.2 trillion stimulus package. Um, and the Lakers spokesman said, the Lakers qualified for and received a loan under the payroll protection program. However, once we found out the funds from the program had been depleted, we replayed the loan so that financial support would be directed to those most in need. The Lakers remain completely committed in, to supporting both our employees and our community. So ultimately, they did return the loan. However, they applied for it, which, I mean, I get it. No games are being played right now. Um, everyone's pretty upset that the Lakers don't have a chance to run at their title, but they probably didn't need it. So Steve Munchen, the Treasury Secretary, he says, I'm not a big fan of the fact they took the $4.6 million. I think it's outrageous. He also added, uh, he would have never expected in a million years that the Los Angeles Lakers would take such a loan. And he also was glad that the team returned the money uh, or, quote, they would have had some liability, unquote. So not really a good look for the Lakers. Glad they returned it. But, again, these are unprecedented times during COVID, so I know everyone's trying to make sure their paperwork is straight. So moving on to our last segment today is case law. Um, in case law today, I have two cases I'd like to discuss. Uh, the first is about NBA or sorry, NFL agents and poaching. So here's a lesser known headline. Um, NFL agent Todd France, he beat a 2.3, excuse me, $2.3 million alleged poaching legal dispute. Now, France is an NFL agent. Uh, he works for an agency. Uh, and this case was against a rival agent, Jason Bernstein. And this all was a result um, and the outcome of an NFLPA arbitration process. And so the dispute really hinged on Bernstein alleging that uh, France inter interfered with Bernstein's representation of NFL wide receiver Kenny Goladay. Um, or Goladay, I might be pronouncing that wrong. Um, and really whether France improperly 
induced or encouraged uh, the player to switch his agent of record uh, by providing or offering money or any other thing of value uh, to induce the, the, the incident. So um, ultimately, you know, an arbitrator found that uh, that Bernstein failed to, to sustain his burden and failed to prove that uh, France initiated communication with Gulladay uh, instead of uh, Gulladay, uh, you know, contacting him. And really this all sort of came out of an event, uh, sort of a private autograph signing, uh, memorabilia signing, um, in which... Uh, there was some, there was maybe some improper uh, <laughs> inducement or encouragement, um, and you can read up about this later. But uh, you know, they're they're, they're essentially saying that um, that Mr. Goliday was compensated uh, improperly by one agent, um, and that the compensation wasn't discussed with the agent of record. And then ultimately, the player left the, his agent of record for the new guy, essentially. So it really hinges around whether or not a player can, you know, terminate their representation. Uh, it really is AC fit. So we'll see how that one, see how that one turns out. Um, you can really see how you know the agent game is really cutthroat. So all of those aspiring agents out there, be careful. So that really takes us to our last one, our last case today, which is pretty disappointing from my uh, from my point of view. But the U.S. women's national soccer team uh, has had a case going against uh, United States, the United States Soccer Federation, um, in which they were seeking sixty-six million dollars under the Equal Pay Act and Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of nineteen sixty-four. Um, the team was alleging that its collective bargaining agreement did not pay its players equally uh, as the men's team is compensated. Unfortunately, recently a judge dismissed the U.S. women's national team's equal pay claim. So on Friday, uh, just a couple of days ago, a federal judge ruled against the United States women's national team in its case against U.S. soccer in a dispute over unequal pay between the men's and women's team. Um, the judge also rejected um, a claim uh, that, the, that the women's team raised uh, in which they felt there were unequal working conditions uh, due to the fact that they played on turf. So there are two arguments uh, that the team made that were, that were thrown out. So argument one is that U.S. women national team thought they were paid smaller bonuses and would have earned more money under the men's collective bargaining agreement. The judge, you know, to, to summarize and suffice, stated that the evidence is insufficient to create a genuine issue of material fact for trial. So that was thrown out. Second argument they made in regards to the turf, the U.S. Women's National Team argued that the fact that they have had to play U.S. soccer-operated games on artificial turf over the years amounts to unlawful discrimination uh, because the men's team, they play on real grass. Um, here, the judge again said there's insufficient evidence that the reason for this and that the reason for this disparity 
I'm sorry that the uh, there was insufficient uh, insufficient evidence that the reason for this disparity was unlawful discrimination, and that reasons other than player safety could be considered in scheduling games. So all is not lost. Um, there is a little bit of uh, of little hope, I guess, um, for the the women's national team because the judge did not dismiss their claims uh, that USSF was breaking, uh, was violating the Civil Rights Act. So the women's team can move forward with claims of discrimination um, in regards to their charter flights, their hotel accommodations, their medical and training support services, which they argue are subpar to what the men get. And so the judge gave some reasoning and, and here his quote, here's his quote in the decision. Um, the history of negotiations between the parties demonstrates that the women's national team rejected an offer to be paid under the same pay-to-play structure as the men's national team, and the women's national team was willing to forego higher bonuses for benefits, such as greater base compensation and the higher degree of, and the higher guarantee of a higher number of contracted players. I'm sorry. Let me repeat that. They were willing to forego higher bonuses for benefits such as greater base compensation and the guarantee of a higher number of contracted players. Accordingly, plaintiffs cannot now retroactively deem their CBA worse than the men's national team collective bargaining agreement by reference to what they would have made had they been paid under the men's national team's pay-to-play term structure when they themselves rejected the structure, rejected such a structure. Now, I'm sure that's very disappointing because the women's national team actually won the World Cup. They've been champions for years and years. Uh, so, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty disappointing to see that they, uh, for some reason, can't be compensated uh, as much as the men. I think it's ridiculous. I think that needs to be revisited. Um, and, you know, again, somehow politics has made, our way, made its way into our conversation about sports. But current presidential candidate and uh, – sorry – Candidate and former Vice President Joe Biden, he weighed into the issue, stating on Twitter, at the women's national team, don't give up on this fight. It's not over yet. And at U.S. soccer, equal pay now, or or else when I'm president, you can go elsewhere for World Cup funding. So that concludes our second episode of At Legal Ease, the cashing out edition. You can see how some money works, how the money talks in sports. Uh, from endorsement sponsorship deals, image and likeness instances, all to fair pay um, in sports between men and women's sports. So I'm glad you guys joined us. I'm going to hop on and see this new uh, Jordan documentary, and I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) 